Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. This is, of course, the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot, and joining me today, once again, just me and him, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Together again. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I'm getting kind of used to this, uh, just me and you uh, doing this show. Yeah, we don't need those other two co-hosts, do we? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, clearly not. I mean, I don't know. That's fine. I don't know. Maybe we could we could use all the funds that we save uh, on their salaries <laughs> to, I don't know, do nothing. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, how are you? Uh, how are you doing over there? It's uh, it's pretty hot. Yeah, yeah, it's been toasty. I think today and tomorrow are supposed to be the two hottest days of the week. So Perfect. we'll get through it. We've got a couple air conditioner units here in the house. So we will manage. And of course, I am recording currently in my basement, which is below ground, the bunker. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's nice and cool down here. You're lucky I'm on the ninth floor. <laughs> it's terrible. I bet. Um, uh, so... Um, Geez, I don't know. My mind went blank, Ryan. What to ask you? I thought I, I thought, thought I had something for you, but how about what are we doing today? Small talk. What? How about what are we doing today? All right. Well, why don't we? <laughs> the heat's gotten to you, hasn't it? Yeah, all right. Well, I thought I'd give us a little bit more banter, but you're right. Okay. Yeah, let's. I know. All right. Well, let's not waste any more time, Ryan. Since we're both hot, and I want to get my barbecue started. Uh, <laughs> Why don't you tell the fine folks at home just what the heck we're doing today? Today, our special guest is Monique Nelson, who's the Director of Community Engagement from the Possibilities Association of British Columbia. Welcome, Monique. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the show. I'm glad you could make it. And not only after that, I have to say that he called you a special guest. I don't remember the last time that he called anybody a special guest. So just saying, clearly, he's he's taking this appearance very seriously. Oh, okay. I don't mind. I've got some gray hair. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> well, listen, we want to thank you so much, uh, actually, for coming on the show. We've actually, we actually wanted to get you on for a while. Uh, we had some scheduling hiccups. Um, but that's kind of just, that's a normal summer thing. Uh, I, we can't even tell you how many uh, podcast guests we've been trying to get over the course of the summer that we've had trouble scheduling just because vacation schedules, everybody's going on vacation this year because they can. Oh, um, not me. I'm staying here in beautiful BC. Actually, I'm calling in from the unceded territories of the Squamish and Hunkamedic speaking peoples here in Burnaby, BC. Oh, it's lovely. See, um, and, uh, See, we're neighbors mm-hmm. and right here in New West. So, and Ryan's in oh. Coquitlam, actually. We are literally all neighbors. That's right. We yeah. are. We are. All right. Well, why don't we start off with um, maybe just giving us a little bit of a, a sort of a brief overview of yourself and, and what you do over there at Possibilities, and then a, just a really brief overview of, of what the organization does. Sure. Love to do that. So I'm Monique and I'm a mom of uh, two young people, one of whom has autism. And that's how I got into the field of community living. So I was working in treaty negotiations before that, doing communication and consultation work. 
And I found that I had to bring my professional life and my personal life a little bit closer together uh, in order to support the family. But a lot of what I learned working with the Indigenous community actually directly applies to working with people with disabilities as well. We share a very similar experience of institutionalization. Um, although there are many differences between our groups, that's certainly a common thread. And uh, it was really a it hit the ground running when I created this role. Uh, I hope it's fair to say that. Started out in family support and technical writing, and then um, assumed the role of communications manager, and then became social media, and we added digital communications specialist. And the, our little team at Possibilities helps support uh, 600 employees who serve about 1,900 individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities across BC. Wow. So we do the internal and external communications, including things like the Good for All podcast. Wow, that's amazing. So it's a, it's a, it's a fairly large organization. I actually had no idea. Yeah, it's one of the larger ones in BC, uh, mostly serving the Lower Mainland, but we also have behavior support services and home living uh, in other parts of BC. So yeah, we're on the island and in the interior and up the Sunshine Coast a little ways. So we provide employment services, community connecting and integration, employment supports, and all kinds of different residential options from 24 7 uh, staff group homes through to supporting folks to live in apartments on their own. And then the most common model of support for residential these days is the shared living, where we help match individuals with caregivers. Um, and it's a nice organic arrangement that's community-based. That's one thing I, I noticed is the common thread of either building partners with the community or developing relationships within the disability community itself. It really seems that Possibilities is all about community. Yeah, thank you for noticing that. I really appreciate it because that was exactly the approach that I took on when I first joined the organization 14 years ago. I was thinking about where are the gaps and how can we work better together? And believe it or not, Ryan, that wasn't always the way it was. It was a little more competitive over contracts. And of course, each individual organization still has to compete, for lack of a better word, to mm -hmm. serve, um, serve folks. But there's a lot more cooperation and collegiality. And some individuals will have one kind of service from one organization, like their day supports, and their residential with us, or vice versa. And so people need to be able to communicate clearly uh, across different company cultures, um, just pretty interesting. So we also have lots of employees who work for more than one organization. This is the nature of the the um, the business, actually. Lots of people hold two jobs, some even three. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because that's something that we've often talked about on the podcast is that um, the disability community on on a whole. Um, can feel very fragmented sometimes. And it can, can be kind of difficult to navigate because there's just so many different organizations that are servicing sort of niche pockets of, um, of disability. And, and that's really because that, that's just the nature of the beast because um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of these organizations aren't necessarily big and they don't have the resources to say service hundreds and hundreds of people. So they're servicing, you know, sort of a small base 
Um, but there's just so many of them. And so for people out there in the community that, that sort of are looking for resources, they don't sort of always know where to go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I think the way that came about, particularly in community living, is that it's been family driven. So those boards of nonprofit societies were often a group of families who got together to support their, their kids. You know, they got together to say, educate them in church basements. And then the kids got older and they would say, well, what are we going to do about housing? Or who's going to take care of them and love them like I do when I'm gone? So a lot of these little organizations popped up in that fashion. And even as recently as just a few years ago, there were a group of parents in Burnaby. They started something called the Square Peg Society. And that was because the their loved ones wouldn't qualify for support from Community Living BC. Um, typically, they're on the autism spectrum and they, they have a very high IQ, but they definitely could use other supports to social skills, employment skills, um, post-secondary education, housing access, all of those things. And so these parents formed to support each other and to start to tease out those pockets and advocate for more support for their sons and daughters. And they've done a lot of great work in Burnaby over the last few years. And I'm thankful every week I'm sending someone to their door to help them out. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And, and I really see that as an important um, aspect of this a sort of battle for disability rights and to really sort of move the needle um, in terms of, of really um, building out, uh, you know, uh, an, a, an infrastructure of accessibility and inclusion and, and building out a lot of these services. That's how they get, they need to start. They start small and they build. Can you speak a little bit to, you know, sort of in that sense, about partners and, and who you partner with, how important is sort of partnership with all these different organizations for you guys? Yeah, it's, it's always been important, but particularly I would say in the last eight years or so, we work together with uh, an organization called Kinsight, which actually has operations in both of your communities, Coquitlam and in New Westminster, as well as the Burnaby Association for Community Inclusion. And together, our organizations have a very large budget, the majority of the funds that are spent on adult services with disabilities within what we call the Fraser region, or CLBC calls the Fraser region. So when we work together and advocate for a platform or change, we're likely to be more successful than if we were working individually. So over this past eight years, we started working with um, social designers and ethnographers to start to look at the lived experience of people with disabilities and the impoverishment of experience that has sort of resulted from life of coming out of the institutions and so on, particularly amongst the older folks who didn't have inclusive education. Um, they have a very different lived experience. And so just sort of studying that, looking at what that is and how could we address those pain points. And this design team helped us prototype a few new services, one of which was called Kudos. And it was a, a thing, a, a platform online, um, originally that would introduce people with and without cognitive disabilities to share a connection, a passion. Um, for example, I'm passionate about bird walks and, or sorry, bird walks, about nature and, and bird watching and so on. So I would host walks around Deer Lake or Central Park in Burnaby and share with folks what I knew about the forest, the ecology, the wildlife um, for an hour. 
So it was just a moment that was something, an opportunity for me to give back and an opportunity for a person with a disability to teach me from their lens how they experience the same interest, a shared moment of connection. And that platform was very successful and they prototyped some others. And now together we have um, support from Community Living BC to host something called Curico, which is the continuance of these moments of connection. But now it's not just one-to-one in person, it's one-to-one experiences, group experience, online experience, video experiences. And it's a platform that can scale across BC and further to serve folks who live in rural and remote communities, for example, it can be a really helpful tool um, in providing connection and learning opportunities for folks. So that's something we did very collaboratively, raised millions of dollars on the side through grants uh, and private foundations to do that work and that refinement before being able to present a polished platform that could become part of a catalog of services. You know, it's funny you brought up Kiriko because I'm, I'm actually looking at that word right now. It's in my notes. Mm-hmm. And did these platforms or programs were they in effect before the pandemic or did it become part of the pivot that you had to do and go online? Yeah, Curico um, is sort of the new brand name of a variety of prototypes that came together. But the individual prototypes did exist before the pandemic. And what the pandemic did was actually help us accelerate that platform and offer it to more people. Right as an option for something to do to help fill their days when they were no longer participating in their community activities. So yes, it it proved itself to be very valuable um, as well as an opportunity to teach folks how to use technology to access that all these um, activities were delivered by a Zoom. So go onto the website, click on the Zoom, and you're, you're in the experience. Well, and I think that's so important, you know, not just in the developmental disability community, but all, all parts of life you know, when the pandemic hit, <laughs> the streets were silent. Nobody knew what to do, where to go, how to do it. You know, we, we lost that social connection with each other. And yeah. so we had to kind of relearn, reevaluate how we were going to move on with life. So it's interesting, you know, like I said, your, your site is a wealth of information and there's just so much to dig into there. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you um, are enjoying, you know, checking it out. And you reminded me of one other type of experience that's offered, which is part of that new name, and it's Meraki. So Meraki boxes were actually boxed experiences that were delivered to people's homes. Mm -hmm. So tactile ways to engage with objects and learning. So not just online. We have a variety of experiences there. Our hip-hop dance lessons are a video tutorial, for example. <laughs> I love it. See, and that's, you know, I was, I was the same way, you know, I was really fascinated with the site because what really struck me is just the, the, the sheer number of different activities and services that, that you provide and knowing how many employees that you have and how many people that you service, I'm, I'm sort of gobsmacked um, just how you guys managed to to deal with it all. Um, You guys must be run off your feet. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you say that. Part of it, I think, is a good blend of employees who are deeply experienced and new innovators who are joining our teams. The possibilities came together in 1998 as four smaller organizations um, who each had a specialty. 
So there's the Mainstream Association for Proactive Community Living is what we were called at that time. And then a fifth joined us, which was Laurel Society and Behavior Consultation became part of what we could offer. So through this period of time, like I can't tell you how many weeks I'll receive a, a, a notification that someone's been with us for 20 years or 30 years. You know, they're, they're people who've been with us since the beginning. Uh, and that's been really helpful, I think, as well as the new folks coming in with the design thinking and what else can we do? How can we excavate the gifts of people um, in the workplace? So it's not just about the job, it's what kind of new roles, how do we harness people's gifts so that it's meaningful for the employees and the people we support and our community members. So it's been a really good process for us to go through this innovation involved employees in that work as well. Well, and you have a testimonial of a an, of an, uh, client who got a job at Mark's mm -hmm. uh, on your website. What's the reaction been from employers and, and engaging with that community? You know, we've had a very strong year. Our employment services team has placed 96 people into competitive community-based employment. Oh. The average prior to that has been 70 to 75 people. So that's a significant increase during COVID <laughs> for mm -hmm. us. Uh, it would, our employment relationship is for at least three years with the employee and the employer. And what that allows us to do is to support the person if their role changes, if the employer's needs change, to try on a new career if the first employer isn't, you know, is someone that they grow out of or isn't the best fit, to problem solve if something isn't going right, or to build capacity in the workplace with the other employees to support, help support the individual, uh, to do some job carving. So there's lots of different things that employment services does to help people secure and maintain employment or to develop their careers. So from an employer's perspective, I think it's important for them to know that we're there and that if challenges arise, that they have someone that they can give a call to. And our typical experience has been if someone's been employed for three years, they're going to continue to be employed. They've learned the skills that they need to continue to work or find other jobs. But we're there for them if they need. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're seeing more and more, I'm seeing more and more on Twitter and social media and, and news of just mainstream companies employing people with disabilities, yeah. realizing how beneficial it is to, to them. So, you know, we are seeing that evolve. We are. And, you know, something like the pandemic, like the current labor shortage has been helpful. And in some ways, I'm sorry it had to come to that. <laughs> um, it's not like this is a new initiative by mm -hmm. any stretch, but it certainly uh, helped shine a spotlight on the abilities of the people that we support. And we're really thankful for that opportunity. And we're starting to get those phone calls from much larger employers. The next big step, it really is to help employers adjust how they bring people in the door. Right. If they're putting out a total online process and someone struggles with that and doesn't have support, they're not going to get that employee to come in for an interview. Or if they aren't flexible enough to offer a working interview to allow someone to demonstrate their skills, that can be another barrier. So wow. there's still work to be done in that sense. Yeah. Um, most most employers are mom and pop shops, right? I think about what two thirds of our chambers of commerce is comprised of small businesses. And so there's lots of employment there, but it's also helpful to get the big players on board. Sure. Yeah, this can be, can be more job carving sometimes in those situations. Yeah. 
Yeah, we have recently talked about disclosure of disabilities on some recent shows as well. And, you know, you get your foot in the door and, you know, you might be on that on the fringe, right? Do you disclose that you are partially sighted? You have enough to be, you know, fun functionally see or, you know, there may be a task that you're not able to do. So do you disclose that disability? Uh, yeah, that's very much up to the individual and what they feel comfortable sure. with. An employer would know that the individual has some support needs at work. Okay. So exposure right. kind of comes with that, right? Um, but we can help in different ways. So we also do fee-for-service contracts for people. So we're not only serving folks who come to us through a referral by our, our funder, Community Living BC. But some people may come to us and they don't wish to disclose, but they need help preparing their resume or preparing for the interview. Okay. And assist them with that part of the job search as well. Right. Yeah. So privacy on that can be maintained. It really just depends on what the individual wants and needs. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about just how important education is in what you guys do as well? But in, And I guess in that, I mean, sort of educating, say, the, the community, um, but also, say, educating employers about uh, about, um, you know, inclusive hiring practices. Do you have, is there a component of possibilities that, that sort of focuses in on that? Well, part of the employment service, uh, one of the offerings that they do have is diversity training, which is specifically with employers or their employees who may have doubts to give them a safe space to air what it is that they're concerned about mm. and to have those questions addressed. So that's certainly part of it. As an organization, we definitely do a certain amount of profile work as well as um, simply <laughs> word of mouth, right? Like most people find right. their jobs off and it's a lead from a family member. So it's just getting out there and the more people that are employed, the more employers that will notice and hear and try. So it's, I think it's really a snowball effect. Uh, we're involved in our boards of trade. I think the time is coming where people are gonna start looking to us for leads to help fill those positions. Our approach is to work with the individuals. So if they're interested in TV and film, then we'll go searching with them to find employment in TV and film. Right. It's not that we just have a roster of employers and try to slot people in where there are spaces. We also don't work on a subsidy basis, which is really important mm -hmm. um, because what we have found uh, from others over the years is that once you put subsidy in a good job, and that's absolutely crushing to someone who's doing a good job and doesn't understand. They need to be let go. So, um, you know, we're not big on that. So where we will success subsidy would be in something like job coaching. If that provides additional hours for some, great, but not wage subsidy. I hope that makes sense. But... Yeah. Yep. No, that's kind of how I got one of my first jobs was wage subsidies. Yeah. <laughs> and did it stick, Ryan? Uh, yeah, actually, I'm here 22 years later. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. It's a happy ending. So, yeah, uh, it did work I'm out. I'm to hear that because I've met folks who've been like absolutely. over seven jobs and yeah. just that we're not uh, trying anymore. It hurts too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, we need that disability mm -hmm. without poverty, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. And, you know, the sort of the great thing about this uh, on most of the things that, that we're talking about and, and that, that you do is that it sort of scratches two itches at once because you're getting you're getting people out into the community which you know you're providing services and support and you're involving the community which is educating the community 
um, all at the same time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's a, we're accredited by CARP, um, which the actual standard for employment services is three years. So like we are saying, there's that sort of sweet spot where if we can stick with a person or an employer for three years, we've got it down. You know, they, that will continue. Um, it's just a good practice that, that we've learned too. It's part of our accreditation, but it also is based on evidence that it'll help people maintain jobs for life. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the podcast and, uh, because we, we did listen to it, to a few episodes. Um, yes, I'm just, sorry. I was just going to ask her when she wants to co-host ours. (laughs) (laughs) See, there you go. Uh, we already have, we have enough co-hosts at intro. Um, so how did that, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how that came about and kind of what the, what sort of the mandate of the, of the podcast is? Absolutely. That came about through a desire to meet the information needs of our employees primarily. Uh, they were asking for another channel, another way for us to communicate, share stories with them. Uh, so we had a team member who was passionate about podcasting and communications. And so we started. And to be honest, we struggle with the time it takes to produce them. <laughs> <laughs> so we've only done a handful, uh, but it is something that we thoroughly enjoy and we we intend to continue, even though it might not be at a great pace that we're hoping for. But going more informal might be uh, an important step for us to get this, more there. <laughs> yeah, it's worked for us for seven years. Quality over quantity. Yeah. Wait, no, we're, we're quantity, we're quantity, quality, quality, right? quality. We're, the, we're the other way. That's right. Yeah. They're quality. Um, They've got five quality episodes. We've got a lot of quantity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We actually worked with the team to train us on like shaping story and how, different um, kind of ways to structure a podcast and right. different techniques for us. Um, music and background and on-site work. And, yeah, it's been great learning too. Wow, we see Ryan. We need to we need to do some of that. training. I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> yeah. a, I no idea what we're doing. Uh, um, too. <laughs> but but it's but it is really true. Um, the I, I find the podcast platform is is really great for sharing stories and sharing information and trying to to get the word out there and educating people. Um, it's just there there's there's been no better platform for many 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 years um that that sort of has allowed an organization or an individual no matter the size you know if they've got a working mic and they've got some free software on their computer they have the means to produce something and to put it out into the world yeah yeah and i and i really do like I, you know call me crazy but I, I do think that part of that sort of in conjunction to sure with stuff like social media, but I think that this is the thing, these are the things that we have to thank for actually pushing the needle forward in terms of mm-hmm. educating and, um, you know, sort of, sort of advocates, the, the big uptick in advocacy in the mm-hmm. disability community. And uh, on that note, what do you think of platforms like TikTok for the same purpose? Don't get me started on TikTok. I don't know. Why not? <laughs> as a blind, as a blind person, I I've I've tried it. I cannot 
it doesn't seem to be that accessible to me. Oh, okay. And so sure. I, I know there are blind people using it, but I don't know what limit right. of vision they have, but I, I, I'm not able to make any sense of it. Okay. You know, social media is such a complicated beast. Um, <laughs> it, it really is sort of, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in ways. Um, and so it's, it's a complicated question. I think that social media is fantastic for being able to create communities and to bring people together that normally would never have been able to interact and share resources. We, I mean, we desperately need that, especially in something like the disability community, because like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of times where people don't know where to go. And there's no, it's not like there's a centralized information hub resource that's easy to find for people to go in to be like, oh, you know, you know, I have a, I have a son who's visually impaired. What are my, what are my funding yeah. options or where can I go for support? There, there is no centralized hub. So in a way, social media can help mitigate some of that. So, and I think that that's, that's really great. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the same thing with, you know, I think that, that, uh, people in the disability community that are utilizing these platforms to create content and whether that content is just something that they do for fun, that they enjoy, that enriches their life. That's great. If they use it as, as an opportunity to try to educate also think that's great. Um, it's just, uh, it's just the, all the other bad apples that sort of, <laughs> that sort of, that sort of get on those platforms and sort of ruin it for everybody else. I'm curious about your comment about no central hub for information because I was thinking, um, in my experience, that first person was the social worker that we had when my son was little and first diagnosed. And then as he got older, it was um, there was a new position called Navigator, which helped us figure out some of the transition to adulthood aspects of his life. Was that uh, different for you, having low vision, a different experience? Mm -hmm. I lost my sight in a car accident so instantaneously mm. and was living in a different province than my, my parents. And oh. I, was, I was a young adult. Mm. And so, you know, at the time there was the CNIB mm -hmm. and, you know, being the national organization for the blind, that's where you went. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was pretty straightforward, but, but now, well, even prior to that, but, you know, now there's the CCB, the CFB, the AEBC, there's, you know, five, oh, six, mm -hmm. seven different organizations for the blind and partially sighted, but oh. there's not a, a, there's not, like Rob said, there isn't one website you can go to, you know, I'm blind.com yeah. that, that lists the different funding agencies for K to 12 or post-secondary if you're blind or partially sighted, um, where you can get, you know, mobility, orientation, mobility training, braille instruction. You know, uh, there's no, there's not a one-stop shop. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's especially, and it's especially tricky too, when you factor in things like, well, you know, I have a, I have a school age child that mm -hmm. we need some sort of, you know, electronic braille equipment to help them with school. Mm -hmm. Where, where can we go to, to get a loan for that? Or where, mm -hmm. where can we go to get funding to buy something like that? Those, those types of questions um, of very specific needs. I feel like those are the things that sort of fall through the gaps. People are like, right. well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where to go for that particular need. So it can be, it can be really tricky. And part of the problem, um, and, you know, we, we can really speak well, I, I feel like with the sort of the, the low vision and the blindness community, because that's where most of our experience lies. 
Um, but certainly part of the problem is that different organizations don't always talk to each other. They don't always um, work together because like you mentioned before, even though we're all on the same team and we're all working towards the same end, there's also a component where there's a little bit of competition because, because of funding, because of grants, like everybody's trying to get funding for their, for their or, own organization. And so things like referrals or things like that don't always happen when they need to. But I'm, but I'm curious to, to get your take on that and what your kind of experience is. You know, I think as you were speaking, my mind went right away to the Disability Alliance of BC. Mm-hmm. And yep. how, how might they be able to help? Uh, in, in my experience, there's been some significant growth in an organization called the Family Support Institute of BC. It is pan-disability. Hmm. So although, you know, a lot of the folks that they serve would, you know, qualify for our services, there are also folks who have rare genetic disorders or other types of disabilities. They face the same kinds of issues when it comes to things like you know, advocating for inclusive education and enough support in the classroom Mm -hmm. through to their parents planning for wills, estates and trusts and disability savings plans, you know, and and the challenges that might come with developing friendships and networks and caregiver burnout and and all of those things. So I've been very fortunate to see that blossom. That was one of my my aspirations when I first started in the field is that there would be a one-stop shop for families. (laughs) rather than all of our individual associations hosting workshops and learning events, just trying to get the information out to people. But I really think we need solid um, investment in social workers. And when we came into the system in the early 2000s, there were a series of cuts in that area. I'm not sure if they ever recovered. I think Hmm. the amount of people needing support puts that system into crisis mode. Hmm. Right. And only... The families in crisis get attended to, but the proactive planning and support that used to be there with the moderate caseload isn't isn't there anymore. Mm. So we'll see what happens. There's going to be a redesign of the service framework for, or it's underway already for children and youth with additional support needs, and it's moving to local area networks or hubs. I think there are 43 planned for across the, the province. Oh wow. Um, so that will change things, and we'll see how that goes, with and without a diagnosis. That's why we do the podcast, because we learn something every week. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so true. Yeah. yeah, and that does, that makes me, that that actually gives me some hope, um, because, I mean, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to look at, at the system right now and to realize <laughs> that it's, it, there's some problems. It's, it's certainly. Um I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would, I would go as far as it's broke, but I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's it, like you said, it's in crisis mode. Um, and that's not even considering all the other things that that affect that, that are also in crisis mode, like e.g. housing, inflation. Um, there's all these things that um, trickle down and uh, affect all of us, you know, in this, in, in the, the advocacy world. Oh, absolutely. And there's quite strong opposition to these changes that are being proposed from the autism community because it's a move away from individualized funding and choice that families have had since about 2000, the year Mm -hmm. 2000, 2002, somewhere in there when autism funding was first introduced because it was won through the court system. So there's pushback 
as well. And people are concerned with how's it going to work? How long will the wait times be through these centers? That kind of things. Sure. Right. Yeah. And well, if it's no, no invest, additional investment, how we serve more people in, mm -hmm. the, in this new model. I've tried to have someone from the Autism Society of, of Canada even on the podcast. Mm -hmm. They are such a large and I, I'm going to assume powerful organization that, you know, it would be hard to, to make any movement there. Yeah. Yeah. There's an organization called Aid Autism Information. And I forget, sorry, the last two uh, letters. <laughs> they have a variety of helpful toolkits for families and I want to check out some of their resources to okay. aid. Yeah. Yeah. That must be sometimes be a little bit of a challenge um, because that's the other thing about the disability community that is so large and it's so widespread. Um, so it can be hard to, to get everybody working together in the same direction because sometimes some policies might sort of seem like it's works against a certain pocket and they might not like that, even if it's sort of for the better of the entire system. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. And I'm hoping that as each province um, finalizes and implements its Accessibility Act legislation, yeah. that things will improve for more people. Another yeah. optimist. Yeah, <laughs> see, fingers, fingers crossed on that one too. We've got our fingers and toes crossed waiting for the Accessible Canada Act as well. So yeah, yeah, we have to keep our fingers crossed. It's taken a tremendously long time to get to this point. Yes. So we're going to have to hold everyone accountable for the that 10 year horizon to roll it out. Here I know. BC. Well, it sure is working for Ontario. So <laughs> have either of you ever been to the um, National Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg? No. Oh, well, if you get a chance, there's a fantastic display there on disability. Really? Disability. And it's the most radically accessible building I've ever been in. It's mm. really beautiful. So you've got your, your you know, low vision support, your auditory supports, the physical accessibility of the space, the accessibility of the learning materials and exhibits that are suitable for children and adults of all ages. So it's quite a place. Uh, I think you just gave us a podcast idea. <laughs> or right. a, a, re a reason to go to Winnipeg. A reason to go to Winnipeg. This would be nice. We could have listeners in Winnipeg. You don't know. That's oh, true. there's a strong disability movement there in Winnipeg, right? BC People First isn't the first people first. Winnipeg was the first place, I think. Well, see, well, there you go. No, yeah. I, yeah, well, okay, I'm writing that down, Ryan. I'm writing that yeah. down. I got to yeah. go. I'm learning too much here. Yeah. <laughs> that's right that's speak to oldies like me <laughs> in listening to your pod one of your podcast episodes you talked about october is community inclusion month yes so do you have any events planned or anything you want to talk about or promote for this upcoming october i know we're only in august right now but oh i'm so glad you asked absolutely we have the inclusion art show and sale number 18 Wow. Been doing this for 18 years, and Possibilities is the convener or host. And we invite art studios from other organizations, as well as independent artists who identify as neurodiverse or having a disability, to come and join us to show and sell their work. And we take a modest commission uh, 
charge a little bit for tables and lattices to recover our costs. Um, but it's not too much. But it's it's a good thing. <laughs> and people sell lots and lots of art. We typically sell ten to fourteen thousand dollars worth of art in a day. Well, and listening to that podcast episode about you guys at Pottery Works and listening yes. to the artists talk about their work, you yeah. can tell there's a sense of pride. There's a sense of ownership. Um, and yeah. it was, you know, that's the only episode I've listened to so far. But it was just, you know, again, so good. So about community and relationships and just their their eagerness to to share their talents, right? Find your Absolutely. passion. And I managed the, or sorry, I mentioned the sale part because the validation of having someone purchase art can also be really important to some yeah. people who participate and the economic benefits of that. Um, it's been wonderful. And it's a, the kind of event where you leave it exhausted because your face hurts <laughs> from smiling so much and your body hurts from the hugs <laughs> and you've been dressed up and, oh. and socializing and having nibbles and there's music as well. And it's just, the most joyful occasion and we're delighted to host in person during COVID, we developed a website year one it was just a showcase because we didn't quite have we weren't quite sure what we were going to do yet with this website and then we added a shopping cart feature for year two and that was really successful for us so we plan to maintain the in-person show and a web collection so people can shop or present in either format some of the artists don't wish to be engaging with the public they quite like the idea of just going online Right. So we're able to meet more people's preferences having both. And yeah. so will all the event details be up on your website probably in the next month, I'm assuming? Yes. Yes. And we have our own website for the art show. It's inclusionartshow.com. Thank you for helping us share that out. Our registration is still open. So people have until basically Labor Day weekend to get their registration into us if they'd like to join in this year's show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'd love to come back because there, there is so much to talk about. <laughs> there absolutely is. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe we can, we'll, we can line it up with uh, an event that you, we can help you promote. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, you know where to find us. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Monique, for taking some time out and talking with us. And uh, yeah, please come back again and uh, we'll, we'll definitely be in touch. Thank you, Rob and Ryan. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Wow. Now I feel guilty. Now I feel like we rushed her off. Now she just didn't want to go. Well, like I mentioned a couple of times in that interview, if you go to the website, possibilities.ca, there's a wealth of information. There. I know. Tons I know. of events, tons of information about all sorts of stuff. Like she said, housing, employment. Yeah. It's These just, guys. Yeah. Yeah, these guys do so much. Like it's it's crazy how much they do. And uh, like I had I had no idea that the staff was so big. Mm -hmm. Although it doesn't surprise me, but also like just how many people they service across the province. Um, yeah, it's and they do so much, like so much, and so like varied. They have they have internal clubs. They have you know community events where they're in the community doing different things. You know, they're, they're providing housing. They're providing employment. Um, I, I don't, I really don't know how they do it. People, the right people in the yeah. right place. Well, you know, it's funny, you know, to think that there are other organizations that will remain nameless that are around the same size. Um, and, uh, they really struggle in providing, um, sort of baseline services. 
So I think you're onto something there. It's, it's about the right people and the right infrastructure. And I mean, look, I know I'm not that I'm slagging anybody, mm -hmm. like whatever, every organization has their Achilles heel and something, you know, that, that they struggle with. And some organizations really, no matter their size, if you don't have the right people and you don't have the, the right infrastructure, uh, it can be a real, a real problem to try to, to, try to um, provide services for a huge swath of people. And I think it comes down to passion. You know, she said she's a mom of two young kids, I think on the autism spectrum. So, you know, she has a passion, right? She has a desire um, to educate, to advocate, not just for her own, her own family, but others in the community. And so you can, you can see that on the website. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. They're doing great work. Yep. Yeah, they really are. So we'll definitely have her back um and uh to talk more about uh about what they do but uh definitely encourage anybody who's uh interested to go to the website uh go to the uh art show even if you don't know of anyone with a developmental disability you know maybe you're not interested go there anyway and just look at the site listen yep. to a podcast episode because yep. i guarantee you will get something out of that website yep 100 percent. oh uh, and guess what what Guess what else? What, what, what? It's our 300th episode. Oh, is it? You know, yeah, that's right. I forgot about episode. that. I knew that coming into the show and then I completely forgot uh -huh. about it. So, all right. Well, you want to, do you want to give a little speech? 300, no, 300 that's episodes. Good. That's it. Well, wait, how do you feel? Let me interview you. Hey. So <laughs> you've done, you've been on 300 episodes of a podcast. How do you feel? Actually, I wasn't on 300 because I took a break, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, you've been on, on like 300. Two, How do you feel? You've had, you've had 200. Uh, this is no fair. I'm doing the interview. Uh, I don't know. Tired. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's great. It's, uh, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that it's been 300 episodes. I, 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 the number seems very surreal to me um, because I still remember doing episode one and how much we struggled with that and we're super nervous and it was a terrible episode and we sucked and it was like 20 minutes long. And, um, yeah. And, you know, we talked to, I think it was Steve who said, you know, he probably last three or four episodes, you know, here we are into our seventh year, yeah. our 300th episode and yep. we still have guests booked and we're still booking. So, yep. you know, there is no shortage of people, organizations, or even topics to talk about. So that's right. As long as your game, we will continue on. No, exactly. As long as, as long as we're fighting this, the, the good fight, trying to get fix all these systems and, uh, and advance disability rights. Hey, you know what? Even when we fix that, then it's just going to be, then we can just tell cool stories. We can just have people in the community to come on, talk about cool stuff that they do. That'd be cool too. I'm down with that. So. Well, there's, let's put that out there. Cause even now, you know, if people have some cool stories to talk about that are disability related, send us an email to cowbell yeah. at atbanter.com. We want to hear your stories. Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk to you. We'll talk to anybody. Almost. It's not talk, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Come and talk to us. Yeah. So we want to hear from you. Man, Ring those phones. Ring those phones. Can't, they can't. You, you, you turned off the 1 800 number. That's true. Meanie. I know. And you took away our .ca. I did. You're really, you're really working against the show, Ryan. You question your, uh, your loyalty. 
Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's I fine. can bring them all back. And Steve's no. paying for everything now, so I could bring them all back and then just send them to him. No, well, there you go. You probably do it. <laughs> I don't know why you don't. Uh, I don't think he'd go for the phone line again. That was my yeah, only. Yeah, maybe, maybe didn't not. Really understand that. But. Well, you should have just phoned it yourself and just like made up voices. <laughs> oh, I just like to say that I really love the show. Oh, <laughs> uh, that'd be funny. All right. Or ask members of our audience to, that I know that would call to give yeah. us a call, leave messages. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure we'd have some people. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think that's it. All let's right. let's get out of here. Uh, hey, Ryan. Yeah, Rob. Where can people find us? They can find us online at atbanter.com. Hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at uh, cowbell at atbanter.com. And they can find us on Facebook and Twitter. That is going to about do it for us this week. Big thanks, of course, to Monique for joining us today. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 